So today on the program, we're really happy to welcome Melissa Stacy, and she's with Compassion Choices to talk about a proposal that's been around in Massachusetts for quite a long time now, a medical aid in dying bill, proposed legislation. So Melissa, first, nice to virtually meet you. Nice to meet you too as well, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk uh, about this very, um, well, uh, emotional subject for a lot of people on, on both sides of the issue, I am sure. And there is an event that's coming up here in Quincy um, in the not too distant future that folks can attend um, as well. But maybe for some background information, tell us first of all about Compassion and Choices and yourself and how you got involved with this particular effort. Wonderful. I'd be happy to. Uh, so Compassion and Choices is a national organization that's really focused on ensuring that people's values that they carry through their life carry into their end of life and death planning as well and making sure that everyone, regardless of where they are, or who they are, have access to the death that they want. Um, and that can be, you know, all the measures in the world or that could be um, minimalistic uh, depending on the person and the individual. Because as you said, it, it is really an emotional um, discussion. It's an emotional choice. And so that's our focus as an organization that includes advocating um, around the country and states and at the federal level for medical aid and dying. And then me professionally, um, I've been with Compassion and Choices for about a year and a half based in Massachusetts. I cover the entire Northeast, but Masses is a large focus right now. Um, and as you said, this, you know, bill has been around for a while. I've heard about it. Um, but I come from a background with the American Cancer Society and having some personal experiences with family members that want medical aid in dying as an option when they get to the point that they uh, treatment is no longer available for them is really uh, something that is, is close to my heart. I've had a lot of discussions with my family and friends as well as some individuals. And so kind of seemed a natural, a natural fit to move into, into this world. And so um, I've had an opportunity to meet a lot of incredible advocates with some heartbreaking stories, um, but people were really passionate about moving this legislation forward. And so we're, we're really happy for the opportunity. As you said, uh, at the, the um, First Parish Church in Quincy, on Thursday night at 7 p.m., we'll be having uh, a public event where people can come and learn a little bit more. Great. The organization itself, is it a nonprofit organization? It is a nonprofit organization. It's been around for a long time. Actually, its roots are in the Hemlock Society, um, but it, it came out um, and it has been focused really on end of life planning and options as a nonprofit nationally uh, for a number of years now. Yeah, and um, it is a, as you say, a nationwide organization because there already is existing uh, legislation on this topic in many other states. There are. We've actually had legislation passed in 10 states in one jurisdiction, which is Washington, D.C. Um, way back when the original law uh, went into place in 1997 in Oregon. So we have 25 years of knowledge and evidence and data uh, since then to kind of help us with passing legislation in other states and showing that this really is a safe option for the terminally ill patients that want it. So let's talk a little bit about um, the proposal here in Massachusetts, um, you know, kind of how it started. I think it was like 16 years ago, something like that, that it's been on the table uh, and where the current proposal stands, how it how it differs from how it initially started. Wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So it is. I think the first iteration of this bill was filed in 2008. 
Um, and every session since then, there was a ballot initiative in 2012 that looked really, really good, but there was um, a large influx of dollars late in the campaign from opposition, and the uh, initiative failed by a vote of 51 to 49%, so it was really, really close. Since that time, there's been a lot of changes. I think most notably is that the medical Massachusetts Medical Society has gone from opposing the legislation to a position of engaged neutrality, um, as well as you know ensuring that the safeguards in in the bill are there for for vulnerable populations. However, um, ensuring that terminal patients who want it can access the bill, and so it's a really nice balance of uh, what we heard from different groups through conversation um, and and landing at this final legislation, which I believe the Senate bill was just filed this, this session. So if passed during this session, Melissa, what would medical aid and dying bill do in Massachusetts? So that's a really good question. And ultimately at the core of it is to give terminally ill adult residents of Massachusetts the option, if they want it, to request a prescription that they could then self-ingest to bring about a peaceful death. Uh, the bill at its core really is about that patient bodily autonomy and individual choice is what you want your death to look like. And it is focused on terminally ill patients, people whose life expectancy is short, um, people who don't want to die, but know that death is coming regardless. And this gives them a little bit of that control back so that instead of focusing on the end of their life and the fear around pain and suffering that can come with it, they know they have this choice in their pocket as an option um, to take. And really it empowers them to live um, a little bit better and in less fear towards the end of their life. Um, the bill is... Uh, has a number of safeguards in it, but really primarily is focused on terminally ill patients sitting down with their doctor and having a conversation about what they want uh, for their end of life care. It would allow then the physician after two physicians consults and uh, a, a mental health evaluation with a mental health counselor um, to write that prescription for the patient and then they can utilize it when when they are ready at their choice. And it, it, it is very clearly written so that it is only the patient that can self-adjust. Um, so no one else can take that step for the patient. It's ultimately their decision and making sure that uh, this is what they want and how they want their life to end. Now, as I understand it, um, there's, I guess, um, clarity over how this bill is titled, right? It's, you don't want it to be called assisted suicide. Uh, you want it to be called medical aid in dying. So what's the difference? It's a really good question. Um, oftentimes, we do hear it referred to as, as assisted suicide or a uh, physician-assisted suicide. And it is not that. Suicide at its core usually is done in secret. It's, it's quiet, it's a very individual thing, um, and it is ultimately usually the end of a life that has potential and is being cut short. Uh, medical aid in dying is in fact the opposite of that. We know that patient, the patient is dying, they want the option and control. It's a life that is ending whether they like it or not. And our you know patients, people want to live. Um, who utilize this choice and they will live as long as they can. This gives them that peace of mind um, at the end of life to know they can avoid, you know, the, the worst part at the end. 
Um, so it, it really is fundamentally different. We also know the American Academy of Suicidology has stated this uh, medical aid in dying is not in their purview. This is not suicide. It is a life that is ending uh, regardless of how much the patient wants to live. Now, um, some of the um, arguments against, I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with, um, first of all, there's the religious aspects um, that have been brought up about, you know, is this going against the will of your, whatever your faith happens to be? Is that something that Compassion and Choice is sensitive to? It is something we're very sensitive to. And that's really the point behind the bill um, is that it is an option. It is one option. It's it's a very personal individual choice that people should have access to, but it just because they should have access doesn't mean that it's there for everyone. And so it's optional for all involved. Um, the, the physicians that would practice medical aid in dying, there's no repercussions if a, a physician or you know a nurse or a pharmacist were to say, this is against my fundamental beliefs, they don't have to participate. The patient does not have to request it at any time. The patient can say, yeah, I started down this road and I don't want it anymore. I want to opt out. And so we're very sensitive. People's beliefs are their own and it's it's very much to your core and value. And so as I would never um, expect someone to say to me, no, you can't have this option for XYZ, I would never say to someone else, you must have this option. So we are very, very aware and we just want the choice to be the individual patients and persons. Yeah. So does the initiative have to come from the patient, Melissa, or, you know, could it be suggested by a healthcare provider and, 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 and how does that work? So the patient initially, uh, if the bill is passed, the patient can, can bring it up to the doctor. It, it also can be a conversation. So when a patient is given that six month, um, prognosis and saying, you know, you have about six months left to live, which is also the eligibility for hospice care. Um, It's at that time that the law says that the patient has the right to know about all of the options available to them so that it's on them and the doctor to have the larger conversation. And so the doctor would say, these are all of your options. We do find that usually the patient is the one that brings it up. They're the ones that are knowledgeable about it. This is not a decision that is done spur of the moment or lightly. Usually the patients that request this have done uh, a significant amount of research and had a lot of conversations with their families prior to even bringing it to the doctor. Um, But the law does mandate that when the patient does raise the issue, that the doctor has to go through all options available. And that includes palliative care and hospice care to make sure that the patient really understands and knows that there's other options available and that this is just one. Okay. So, you know, in terms of liability, does that, does it, is a doctor protected when they do start that conversation? If what if the bill is passed, there the doctor is protected. There are no repercussions for a doctor acting in good faith under this, um, because it is part of the law, and this is not deemed suicide. So there is there's no assistance there, and so the doctor in any medical professional, the the pharmacist, including, um, has the protections there when acting in good faith under the law to support the patient and their option for this. Okay, and again, as you pointed out before, um, the doctor or pharmacist, I suppose, too, can opt out, right? They can say that this is um, a course of uh, recourse that the patient could take. However, I, as a physician, you know, will not help you with that. Can they do that? 
They can. Yes, absolutely. They can decide and say, no, this isn't something I want to do. They have to um, be upfront with the patient about it when they ask. They have to, you know, notate it in the patient's chart so that, that you know, normal standard of practice that doctors do when they have, but they are not under any obligation to to uh, assist the patient with medical aid in dying, just this the standard, um, you know, this isn't something I want to do and, and let's refer you to somebody else. Yeah. Okay. I guess you could argue too, that isn't hospice already kind of medical aid in dying? There, there are pieces of it, but um, there is a, a piece that patients often refer to as called palliative sedation. So if you're on hospice um, and your pain and suffering is so great that, um, that you can't, it can't be controlled. They can put you into a Medicaid, medical induced coma um, until you pass. Uh, however, we don't know that patients aren't uncomfortable in that, that they can't still still feel the pain. And it also speaks to, you know, what do they want for their, their quality of life um, to be at the end of their life. And so this gives them that choice instead of saying, no, medicate me until I'm gone. I just let me go on my terms so I can be surrounded by my family and friends. Okay. It's so many questions. I can see why it's so controversial. Um, however, I've, I've looked at some, um, some poll results and people responding to those polls, at least, are overwhelmingly in favor of this. They are, uh, particularly here in, you know, here in Massachusetts, we have 77% of Massachusetts residents have stated um, on a recent poll that they are supportive of this. And again, that goes back to they're supportive of, the, of having this option, not that they necessarily would want it for themselves, but they want it for their, their fellow uh, residents. And it's across all demographics and across um, different political parties. This is not a, a partisan issue. It is across the board and uh, religious spectrums, um, race, ethnical, uh, eth ethnic diversity, um, LGBTQ community, it really covers across the board that people overwhelmingly want this option as an option. Yeah. So, you know, I hate to get morbid about this, but I mean, does the bill specify which medications to prescribe, how much, how long it would take for the person to pass away once they take those medications? Are, are all those questions answered? So the bill itself doesn't. The bill leaves it to the medical professional to decide what type of medication is best for the patient. And that is a conversation, again, between the patient and the doctor, depending on the patient's comorbidities um, and what other medications they may be on at the time of the request. And so we don't want to restrict the medical community. Um, we know that those are answers best left to the, the clinicians. And so they know the medication and the patient's history very well. And so we let them, you know, decide which medications um, to use. And then I, I can share that at the end, um, at the end, the medication usually, you know, takes about an hour or so. Once the patient ingests it, they fall asleep and then tend to pass very peacefully within an hour or two afterwards, um, you know, surrounded, usually surrounded by family and friends, but it depends on what the patient wants. Um, but that is really at the core, part of the core of this is we know that over 90% of people want to die at home. Like that is what you want. You want to be in familiar surroundings with people you love, pain-free, free of suffering. Um, and so that's what this option allows if, if that's what the patient chooses. 
Yeah. Um, of course, there's concern about whether this would be abused by somebody who's looking to benefit from somebody's death. Are there safeguards in place for that? There is uh, a number of safeguards. So in the in the bill itself, uh, the request cannot come from anyone but the patient. Um, the individual must be deemed mentally capable of making the decision. Um, it is assumed that they are, but they have to, you know, there's three physicians, so two doctors and a, a medical, a mental uh, health professional that have to sign off and verify that they are aware of what they're doing and the repercussions and that they are of sound mind to make this decision. Uh, there is a form, a request form that has to be submitted. So the first oral request um, from the patient to the doctor, they have to wait 15 days and go through those process. So see the regular physician, the consulting physician, a mental health professional, and then submit a request form. And that request form has to be signed by two witnesses, one of which cannot in any way be a family member or someone that is um, going to benefit from the death of the patient. And the medical professionals and mental health professional also have to confirm that the patient is not being coerced in any way, that they're not being pushed to make this decision. Um, and again, that's not just one physician, it's all three. Um, and and again, at the end, the patient is the one that has to self-adjust. They have to self-administer the medication, whether through sipping through a straw or drinking, and if they can't swallow, through a feeding tube. Um, so in, in no way can a, care, a caregiver can't pick up the prescription for them. Um, so there's a number of safeguards and protections to ensure that, that people who have fears like that um, are protected. I can say that in the history of this law since Oregon passed in, you know, 25 years ago, there has not been a single substantiated case of abuse or coercion um, across the country. So that's a pretty good track record. Yeah. Um, does it raise questions too about um, life insurance policies, Melissa? You know, um, are there are there safeguards so that a, a, an insurance company can't, you know, put a clause in that says we're not going to pay on this policy if you participate in medical aid and dying? It's a really good point, Joe, and one that comes up regularly. There is, so in the legislation itself, it's written that the cause of death uh, on the death certificate needs to be the underlying illness. Um, so for tracking rep purposes, as well as for life insurance purposes, and that it can't impact um, any of the life insurance benefits that may be left behind for, for family members. Um, it, and it's really nice to have that safeguard in there, I think, for for the peace of mind for the patient so that they know regardless that their family is taken care of. Yeah. What is the current status of the bill on Beacon Hill right, right now as we speak? So we just filed, uh, the Senate bill was just filed, I believe, um, this week. So it's just starting. Things are, are gearing up. So we have Senator Joanne Comerford in the Senate um, and uh, House Representative Leader James O'Day in the House, who uh, will both be filing versions of the bill. And um, they'll be filed and hopefully sent to committee where we could get an early hearing this year. But uh, things are in the, the very early stages. Okay. Would uh, Compassion and Choices uh, seek another ballot question in the future, do you think? 
I honestly, I don't know. I don't want to say no. And I don't want to say yes. We never know. Our hope is that based on the momentum uh, we've seen the last few years, the past few sessions that we really are moving forward. We had um, a significant number of House and Senate co-sponsors on the bill last year. We've seen the public polling numbers um, just going higher. I mean, the we jumped from 70% at the end of uh 2019, 70% of residents being supportive to 77 in 2022. So that's a, a really big jump in a small amount of time. And so um, I think the focus really is on moving this bill forward through the legislative process um, and, you know, help, have, helping the patients weigh in and the advocates weigh in, but really continuing on that momentum that we've been building. Yeah. How do you think the uh, the pandemic, uh, Melissa, has kind of impacted um, this this effort? So I would think it, I don't have statistical data to to stand on, but the conversations around death and your end of life wishes, the pandemic really opened up that conversation. You know, as a society, we are not great at talking about death. No one likes to think about it. And yet it's, you know, the one thing that we're all going to have to go through. Nobody gets out of here alive, right? So, so I think it helped us get a little more comfortable with it. It's still that emotional gut check and, you know, you still sit around the table and, and somebody will say, well, this is what I want at my end of life. And they're like, well, we don't have to talk about that right now. I think the pandemic gives us the opportunity to say, no, it's okay to talk about that now and that realization uh, so if anything, I think it's just opened up those conversations and helped us feel a little more comfortable, still sad, still very emotional, but a little more comfortable with talking about it. So you could tell us what would be happening at the event here in Quincy. Sure. So we have a really good lineup in Quincy um, at the church. Uh, Claire Carl Mueller will be presenting. She's a member of the Unitarian Universalist Massachusetts Action Team, um, talking a little bit about the bills that the, the Mass Action Team is going to be working on. The UUs um, were the first, I think, organized group to come out in support of medical aid of dying way back in the 1980s. Um, and so they've been very supportive for, for decades now. And then after Claire speaks for a few minutes, I'll be talking a little more in depth about the legislation itself. I'll be sharing some patient stories and then really walking through what the legislation entails um, and the different safeguards that are involved in it. And there's about 10 different steps that a patient needs to go through um, to access medical aid and dying and be approved for it once the, if the bill is passed. Um, and then we'll also be sharing some resources available. So in addition to medical aid and dying, we also focus a lot of end of life planning and making sure that regardless of your choice, um, people have those conversations with their families and sit down and do their advanced directives and their other planning tools so that they know that their end of life is what they want it to be. So we'll be sharing some of those resources as well and hopefully having a great discussion. Um, as you said, this is uh, an emotional topic and people have a lot of questions about it and there's a lot of uh, misinformation that's out there. And so our hope is, is that it's a great, it's always a good discussion. People usually ask questions. And so we leave a lot of opportunity for that discussion to take place and really hope to answer as many questions as we can. Okay. Anything else uh, we should let folks know about right now? Um, 
I think the only thing is, is if people are more interested uh, in this issue or, or want to learn more, we have a website. It's compassionandchoices.org slash Massachusetts. There's a lot of resources there as well as links to some of our um, end of life planning tools. We have, you know, the um, advanced directives. We have a dementia toolkit for people who are worried about dementia. They can write down what their wishes are so that their family has it printed out and give it to their doctor. Um, so we have those tools available as well as in-depth information on the legislation. And if you want to get more involved in how to share your story and how to talk to others about it, it's really ultimately going to be the citizens of Massachusetts that pass this legislation talking to their legislators uh, about the importance of it and why they want it and why they support it. So feel free to, to check that out again. It's compassionandchoices.org slash Massachusetts. Yeah, has the new administration, the the Healy administration, taken a position formally? Do you know? Yeah, so um, Governor Healy has stated in uh, a couple of different interviews that she is supportive of the legislation in concept through the um, through the legislative process, and that um, you know she would want to review the final legislation and ensure it has safeguards available, but that she is supportive, and so we are really appreciative of her support. Um, of the the idea of medical aid in dying and look forward to working, you know, with her and her team to make sure the bill includes what it needs as well. Great. Appreciate your time, Melissa. Good to talk to you and um, hope you have a, a good turnout at your event here in Quincy. Wonderful. Joe, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. You're very welcome.